Hello, I'm John Dennis. It's Friday the 6th of November. Joining me today to discuss Afghanistan are Khaith Abdel Ahad, an Iraqi journalist who works as a special correspondent for The Guardian, has just been working in Afghanistan. Hi, Khaith. Hi. Rachel Reed, an Afghanistan specialist for Human Rights Watch. Hello, Rachel. Hello. And Foreign Affairs Editor Peter Beaumont. Hello, Peter. Hello. Guardian Daily with John Dennis on guardian.co.uk. This week, five British soldiers were killed in a single gun attack and Abdullah Abdullah also pulled out of a second round of voting in the presidential election, claiming there would have been widespread fraud. And with Remembrance Sunday approaching in a YouGov poll for Channel 4 News, 35% of British voters said they favoured immediate withdrawal of British troops. Well, before we hear from our panel, let's hear from John Boone in Kabul. John, the Taliban say that Gulbadin, the Afghan policeman who shot dead five British servicemen in Helmand, is safe and under their protection. Where is he? We, we don't know exactly where he is, although there have been reports from the Afghan intelligence service that he has indeed gone over to the Taliban side and was even welcomed by them when he was uh, when, when he arrived, with, with flowers, we're told. They handed over flowers when, when he um, appeared among them. So um, it's not clear where he is, but he, he does appear to be under Taliban protection. Is he a Taliban operative, or is this the Taliban claiming him after the event? It could be either of those things, um, and, and both scenarios um, are possible and have happened in the past. There's all sorts of ongoing speculation about what was what motivated this man, whether he was, as so many uh, Afghan national policemen are, whether, whether he was a, a drug user and was, was not in, in the right frame, was not in a sound frame of mind when this incident happened. There are also questions uh, that there's also been a suggestion again from the Afghan intelligence service that he had been in a, essentially a relationship with the uh, commanding officer who he had been with for the previous two weeks uh, before the incident. It's um, not unusual in southern Afghanistan for elder men to take younger men as their, essentially their, their, their young boys who they, they, they keep for a period of time. And apparently uh, this man, Gulbuddin, according to Afghan intelligence sources, had this sort of relationship. Again, it, it, it's all just pure speculation whether something happened between the two men, whether there was something else in play, plus a, a tribal dispute which has also been speculated upon which could have or, or, or something as simple as as, as a disagreement between uh, the british soldiers and the afghan national police which triggered this incident and then subsequently um, it, it, it was claimed by the taliban and and they they gave him sanctuary or it could have been a much longer term game where they attempted where, where they successfully managed to recruit him to their cause. Again, it, it's, it's all speculation at the moment. Thanks, John. And we'll hear more from John Boone in Kabul later in the programme. Peter Beaumont, have the Afghan police been infiltrated? I mean, I was talking to someone at uh, NATO yesterday about this. I mean, it's, it's not just a question of infiltration. It's a question of, 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 of loyalty. Uh, and, and loyalty isn't, isn't absolute. I mean, people may have joined the police force, but the way that the insurgency has gone, I mean, it's, it's, it's pervasive and corrosive, and people may decide, you know, from day to day, uh, you know, where they are going to stand in this. So you can talk about infiltration, but I think it's actually a question of whether people's loyalties are shifting as they see the, the way the war is going. Keith, what's your take on this? I do agree with Peter that 
It's not a matter of infiltration. It's it, the, the the whole police is so corrupt and and falling apart and dismembered in a way. Uh, you meet policemen and uh, they are paid. Sometimes they're not paid. Sometimes they wait for their pay for two three months. Most of them are paid directly by a commander who is happened to be like their former mujahideen commander or the local tribal commander in the area so uh, there is no a central authority that controls the police and uh, and then they have to fend for themselves when when you drive from Kandahar to Helmand highway you see three four police checkpoints and they always stop you and take a small bribe to let you pass so that's the situation of the police right sure well, uh, it's, it's quite possible they've been infiltrated. There was certainly a case in January 2008 when the Serena Hotel, a big five-star, well, supposedly five-star hotel, was attacked by Taliban. And one of those, we were always told, was actually a member of the police force. They were certainly dressed in police uniforms, and it's very common for the Taliban to use this as a form of attack. Um, whether it's true in this case or not, I don't know. But, I mean, as, as the others have said, loyalty is a big question for the police. And you also need to look at what kind of training they get. They get. And here, the international community obviously has significant responsibility because they've been tending to push them through very rapid paramilitary-style training to throw them out into the field as cannon fodder, really. The police die more than any other group of security forces in Afghanistan. Um, so they're not very well trained. So it's hard then to, to weed out, potentially, people who, who the Taliban might be trying to use to infiltrate. Do you think these killings of these British soldiers in Helmand this week is a turning point? Possibly for the British. I mean, certainly the British public opinion is, is, is on a slow shift away from support for Afghanistan, I think. Um, I mean, not in terms of wider public support um, in Afghanistan or certainly in terms of the wider commitment. And we see, you know, President Obama at the moment engaging in this deep, epic pause at the moment as he tries to work out whether or not he's staying in or um, increasing troops. Um, and I think actually the presidential elections, these shambolic elections we've just seen, have certainly given many of the leaders pause for thought. But we can talk, we can talk next <laughs> about what they should decide. I mean, just before we get on to the election, Peter, I mean, do you think, I mean, the Taliban are painting the, these killings as a big victory. How significant is it to, to the wider sort of NATO operation in Afghanistan? I mean, it's cruel to say it in a way, but I mean, it's not as significant as perhaps we like to think. I mean, it's significant for us because... It's it's one of the largest losses of, of by death of, of gunfire in in uh, you know since the since the British have been there. But I mean, in terms of the wider significance of the conflict, I, I don't think it is particularly significant. Its significant is its significance is in how we feel about it in the UK. And I think, as you said earlier, I mean, you know, thirty five percent of people would like an immediate withdrawal, and I I'm, I'm not sure that even if that was possible, which I don't think it is we would necessarily want to go down that road. Keith, let's talk about the election now, because uh, you were over there um, uh, while, while it was all going on. Um, Hillary Clinton uh, trying to sort of paint a gloss on uh, Abdullah Abdullah's withdrawal was really squirming this week. It was quite embar- embarrassing to hear, yeah, wasn't it? His choice. It was. Uh, but I do not think it affects the legitimacy. Uh, there have been other uh, situations in our own country, as well as around the world, where in a runoff uh, 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 election, one of the parties decides for whatever reason that they're not going to go on. Um, I do not think that that in any way affects but, legitimacy. Uh, and I, you know, I, Abdullah Abdullah was also cheating. It wasn't only Karzai was cheating. Abdullah Abdullah was paying people to go and vote for him as much as, but he didn't have as much, you know, as much influence or money or resources as Karzai had. So people had 
voted more for Kazai because he had more policemen, he had more uh, distributed more money. But Abdullah Abdullah did the same thing. So, um, as Rachel said, it's shambolic, uh, and and maybe maybe I'm I'm not I don't I don't want to be kind of hard here. But some Afghans went there and voted for democracy. But most of the people, almost every person I talked to, voted and he took money from one of the two candidates. It's it's a natural way. I have a tribal leader who comes to me and he say, okay, I've you know I have a contract to deliver, I don't know, ten, five, six thousand votes to Abdullah Abdullah Okazai, and you, my people, will vote, and this is how much money you take. I mean, so looking at the Afghan elections, whether uh, closing more polling station, opening more polling station, the whole process was uh, was shambolic. And it's a question of accountability and legitimacy. I mean, it's exactly the same issue as you have with the police force. If you don't have accountability and legitimacy, you cannot move forward in Afghanistan. I'm convinced of that. And I think I think Karzai was much stronger before the elections than he is now. Karzai before the elections was was talking about talking to the Taliban. The Taliban were also talking to him, and there was like all these moves, um, you know, facilitated by the Saudis and others. Now the Taliban look at Karzai as a, as a lame duck. He's he's much weaker than before the elections. Yes, he has won the elections again, but he has almost whatever of his legitimacy in the Afghan eyes has disappeared. Uh, they know they can read the papers, they can listen to the BBC, and they know that, you know, the Americans are fed up with him. So they are stronger in, a, in one way or another. Does it mean that a civil society in Afghanistan is just a pipe dream? No, I don't think so. I think it was always unrealistic. It was very unrealistic from the beginning of this year. We kept hearing about how 2009 was about the elections. Big British operation in Helmand was about securing polling centres for the elections. That was fanciful to think that actually you could have held free and fair elections, that you could have held ground in Helmand probably for these elections. Um, When you've got a raging insurgency, you've got widespread impunity and insecurity, you were never going to have free and fair elections. So to now see politicians um, starting to backslide because they've seen this, this, this appalling election, is I think, um, well, it either means they were deeply naive or it's disingenuous, frankly, because they knew if anyone properly watching Afghanistan knew what was going on, and frankly, they're complicit in the corruption that we see endemic in Afghanistan. We see all these international leaders um, using the militias of warlords to guard their bases. We see them having high-level meetings with them, and we see them feeding into this culture. So to turn around now and say, this is too corrupt, we're out of here, would be disastrous. So I'm failing to understand why you think a civil society is still possible well, given all that. it takes time. I mean, you've got, you don't have political parties yet in Afghanistan. You don't have rule of law. You don't quite have a free press because the press come under such um, pressure and intimidation from all sides in the conflict and in the government and from the warlords. So with those conditions, it's not yet ready for there to be a, a true democracy. But you do have civil society. And if I can try and raise a couple of vaguely positive points, you had two women running for parliament this time and not one of the main religious um, elders or or councils criticised this. You had 6,000 Afghans volunteering to monitor the elections um, and you had quite an active campaign in some parts of the country, although you had deep disillusion and apathy in it elsewhere. So it's the beginnings and there are plenty of Afghans who show themselves deeply willing to take part and to vote. Although that wasn't your experience, Faith. I, I, no, it's, it's not as was my experience. But the, as Peter said, and in a way Bradshaw said, that there is a sort of a dichotomy between what we you, us, in the West perceives about Afghanistan and what 
what Afghanistan is. So there is always this kind of like, oh, they, they are Taliban's, or they are the lions who are fighting the Russians, or they killed us in the 19th century and all this shit. Well, in Afghanistan, the reality is, is very different. I mean, as Peter said, five British soldiers died yesterday. It is very big thing that happened. But in reality, it's not going to change the life of the Afghans who are living in the countryside under a de facto government of the Taliban, you know, uh, the, the government in Kabul, I mean, I'm not as positive. I don't have these two positive points. But I think the reality on the ground is much different from the debate hall in, in here in London or in, or, or in the States. It's, it's irrelevant what's happening here in London to, to, to the people of Afghanistan. They are living under a rule of uh, the Taliban or uh, a warlord or a, um, a corrupted official in every province in Afghanistan. And, and actually, even for those who weren't scared away from the polls or completely apathetic, they, they, they could have made a perfectly rational decision not to bother voting because, frankly, there wasn't really much much prospect of change. So, again, it doesn't necessarily mean that there is no society, there is no appetite for democracy or some kind of accountability in government. But, you know, they had a choice between Karzai or Dr. Abdullah. And Abdullah is pr- probably even more strongly associated with a set of warlords that people are sick of. So if I was an Afghan, would I have voted? I'm not sure. Maybe I would have voted Bashar Dost, but no. the one anti <laughs> Well, uh, meanwhile, uh, the United Nations uh, says it will evacuate more than half its staff in Afghanistan after the killing of five of its workers last week. It says a complete withdrawal could follow. Here's UN envoy Kai Eid. The UN is putting in place immediate additional security for its national and international staff in Afghanistan. There will be a short-term relocation of up to 12% of our staff while this is going on. Most of these staff are support staff or what I would call non-frontline staff. And there will be relocation inside the country and to some extent outside the country. Well, let's hear again from our correspondent in Kabul, John Boone. John, this was a difficult decision for the UN. Well, it was not terribly surprising. I mean, this is what tends to happen after incidents as serious as the one that we saw last week. And the UN does have a big problem on its hands, particularly in terms of securing uh, its staff in Kabul, because their staff tends to be scattered across many different small guest houses, which all have to be independently secured. Now they want to increase the level of protection on each one of those by allocating international guard forces onto them, which is going to cost a huge amount of money. They want to avoid that sort of expense by creating areas uh, in the city to build um, compounds where large numbers of UN staff can be put in one place in order to uh, essentially keep massive security costs down. So I think they knew they had to do something. They had to respond to this attack that they couldn't, that that the risk to their staff in Kabul had gone up. But but it's going to take time for them to build up the infrastructure that will allow them to protect as many staff as possible in a reasonably um, cost-effective way. What does this decision by the UN mean for the NATO operation in Afghanistan? The, The big fear is that if there's another attack or if the attack that we had last week had been bigger that if that had triggered a general evacuation of um, national of united nations staff then the lion's share of the work in the international project here would be taken over 
by NATO and by a handful of the, of the main foreign embassies, and that you would lose uh, overnight all the kind of work that the UN does and all its many different agencies, which has been highly valued, not least because of the fact that the United Nations was able to, or its staff were able to travel quite considerably more freely around the country uh, than soldiers, particularly anyone connected with the military intervention. And consequently, because they had that greater freedom, they had better outreach, they had um, very good political intelligence, which they then shared with the rest of the international community. All of that would be lost if there's another attack or if the attack last week had been bigger. So the great concern is, is whatever costs to prevent that from happening. And, and that, I think, if, if that does happen, that would have a, a real impact on the, uh, on the NATO mission and indeed the entire international effort here. John, many thanks. That was John Boone, our correspondent in Kabul. Rachel, uh, we're still waiting for Barack Obama to say whether he'll deploy more troops to Afghanistan or begin to pull out, as you said earlier. Um, And you're actually going to be giving evidence to the US Senate Foreign Relations Committee chaired by John Kerry. What are you going to tell him? Actually, I'm, there. I'm going to be there to talk about women's rights, um, which is one of those things we've heard many platitudes about and not much real commitment on. But on the troops question, um, you know, I'm not a general. Um, I've got deep, deep ambivalence about the way in which the military strategy is being carried out. We've seen a counter-terror strategy undermining a counter-insurgency strategy. We've seen a counter-narcotics campaign also undermining counter-insurgency. There's been a muddle of aims. You know, when you've got, for instance, we heard the news quite recently that... Um, Karzai's brother, who's this notorious drug lord in the South, is also a CIA agent. I mean, so there's a total mess of um, different competing actions within the major player, the US. Um, So unless they actually sort that out and work out what they're really trying to achieve, which I don't think they've quite reached yet, then it's hopeless. Um, And what the major flaw in their military strategy has been that they've been killing so many civilians. Um, And that they've recognised, that I have some hope on. The the number of civilians being killed by um, international military has dropped by more than half this year. Uh, So they have made real changes there. But whether a strategy of what they call clear hold build of grabbing territory, holding it with these poor Afghan policemen that we've been talking about, and then reconstruction can ever work, um, it remains really to be seen. But whether some a, a longer term strategy of building up the Afghan National Security Forces and then withdrawing, that might be more effective and feel less like an occupation to the Afghans. Peter, um, what would deploying more troops achieve? I'm not sure it would achieve that much, actually. I mean, you know, one of the arguments in Iraq was that that the more troops you have, uh, the more targets that you present and the more opportunity for civilians to be killed there are. And, you know, for me, you know, Afghanistan can't be solved by by military means. I mean, people talk about this as as if it's a war of values between us and the Taliban. but, But actually... It's not just the Taliban, it's about Afghan society. And I was looking through the Soviet archives uh, recently to see, you know, what the Russians made of all this. And just before the, the Soviet withdrawal, you know, you come across these letters and documents to the Central Committee that essentially, essentially say some of the things that you're now hearing, which is, oh dear, well, we didn't really understand Afghan culture and society. And I kind of feel that that's where we are at the moment. And you can Pour as many troops in as you like, but you know until you actually understand what you're trying to achieve and the people you're trying to help, you're you're going to get nowhere. This week we heard Kim Howells, the former Foreign Office Minister and currently Chairman of the Intelligence and Security Committee in the UK, calling for the phased withdrawal of British troops from Afghanistan. What what would withdrawal 
mean? What would happen in Afghanistan? I mean, if we see now, for example, in Helmand, in places, for example, Sangin, Sangin, where you have a small um, a unit of British forces kind of bunkered in the bazaar of the, the old town, surrounded by the Taliban. So it's, you know, in a way, it's the Wild West mentality. Uh, uh, they hold a small fort and they this is holding a land. Uh, if they stay in Sangin or they leave, it doesn't change the reality of what's happening there in, in Sangin. Even in Helmand, after the big military operation, the Taliban are still there. They would disappear from one village and come back. So, again, we go back to the Iraq uh, comparison. And you see in Basra, I mean, the British stayed in Basra for four or five years. And it was absolute waste of time, energy and life and resources and everything. The militia took over the town. The militia were kind of legitimized and that they were had at the time. The same thing is happening in many places in Afghanistan where you just have a military presence for the sake of military presence for defeating different number of Taliban, 20, 30, that we never see their bodies. And and in a way, that whole kind of military occupation of these villages and towns and, and bazaars is legitimizing itself. So you have to rethink what you want to do with Afghanistan if you, you know, if you want to do anything at all. Well, the, the, the big new idea now, and so your experience is very relevant here, Keith, but the big new idea is, of course, to start buying the Taliban. The Americans now have cleared $1.2 billion for 2010 for the generals to play with in very unregulated funds and part of that is about reintegration is their word and it's basically buying off the talibs which to me I mean maybe it works but I'm not sure how sustainable it is maybe it's just another you know stalemate as as you say in Iraq. If you don't have probably what I'm trying to say if you don't have a proper institutions could be local institutions village size or constitutional institutions and capital size but if you don't have an institution that is respected by the Afghans, see, maybe they live in their villages, but they have the vision, like every other human being, to know this is right and this is wrong. This is corrupted, this is not corrupted. If you don't give them a proper, clean institution and you say, this is your mayor, he's, not, he's just and fair, respect him. It will not happen. Well, I, I think the crucial thing from the British side is to, to, to actually explain to the public exactly what the aims of this this this, this mission are supposed to be to very manage, unclear at the to, moment. exactly very unclear to manage expectations and you know when kim howells talks about phase withdrawal i mean it, it took the russians four years to leave i mean you know these kind of campaigns don't end very quickly i mean even after the decision was made by the soviets to leave i mean that was that was in 1985 i think and it took them till 1989 to finally take the last russian soldier out i mean it's going to take time uh, and we have to decide, you know, what is it that we want to leave behind? What is it we can contribute? And, and, and what do we want to see? And also there needs to be much more honesty from those like Kim Howes who say it needs to be withdrawal. They need to actually address the question of what happens then because many Afghans are quite reasonably afraid of a civil war. You know, the worst bloodshed we've seen in Afghanistan was just after the, the Soviet withdrawal um, when a lot of the internationals fled, turned their backs and forgot about what was happening and the warlords ripped into each other. Um, and many Afghans fear that that will come again. So for those who want to withdraw, they have to answer the question of what will happen. What will happen in terms of the bloodshed and also what will happen in terms of women's rights in, in, in particular. I mean, we saw all these global leaders when the, the Shia personal status law was passed earlier in the year, this very misogynist Taliban-style law, outraged and, you know, reaffirming their com- deep commitment to Afghan women's rights. Um, so do they forget about those pledges now when they say, actually, probably, we think we'd better, better leave them to it, these Afghans, with their crazy ways, we can't intervene, you know. Uh, they need to be honest about what it means for women and for peace. Rachel, Peter and Keith, many thanks for joining us. 